family is all that lives in sight and sound, touch and taste. Live, come on, be human and give, give, give. <laughs> the Woodstock Roundtable welcomes you to be a part of being human. Aho! Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Grunther, your host. We look forward to two hours of improvisational conversation on a few small topics such as evolution and how it's affecting us right now. I mean, the two big stories that are monopolizing our minds, understandably, COVID-19 and a presidential race that looks like a train hurtling down the tracks ready to jump the track. But what's driving those two forces? A game called Evolution. And um, it's a story that's been going on for some time, and we may be at what they call an inflection point. See, we were taught evolution is kind of this straight line up. Wrong. It, it goes along, and then suddenly there's a shift, and shift happens, and we're in the middle of one. And we're going to get a grip on it by looking at an article called The Unraveling of America. An anthropologist signals the end of the American era. What's going on with the insect population and how is that affecting every one of us? And a new discovery in artificial intelligence by students that now means computers can read our minds. We'll also open up the Woodstock Roundtable jukebox, get some live jazz from the Sultan of Sonic Soul, Gus Mancini, and joining our conversation co-host and on-air Radio Weekend Warrior here at Radio Woodstock, Ron Van Warmer. So fasten your seatbelts, inject yourself with caffeine, or whatever else gets you motivated in the morning. Join us for the Woodstock Roundtable. And since the introduction is so short, I forgot to mention we'll also be opening up the Woodstock Roundtable jukebox to look at three of the five most albums that most influenced one of the greatest rock and roll musicians oh, of all time. Okay. Uh, see if you can, I'll give you a few clues as to who the musician is who, who said these were his, the, the albums that influenced him the most. Um, guitar player. Okay. Oh, um, uh, I think people would pretty much, if you said, who are the three greatest rock guitar players of all time? I think most people would pick these three. Right. So we've got uh, Jimi Hendrix. Actually, four. Let's go to four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hendrix. Actually, if you talk to any of the top rock musicians, they put Hendrix one. Yeah. Um, let me think. I know who the other one is, and, I, and his name is eluding me. I know. It happened to me all the time. Fortunately, I was doing this, so I remembered um, it. And I should. I mean, it's so easy. Right. Um, but most people cream. would put Hendrix, right? <laughs> <laughs> Eric Clapton. Eric Clapton, thank you. Uh, and Jeff Beck. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. And some with Jimmy Page. Right. And, of course, we all love George Harrison, who was a great guitar player. Yeah. Maybe an underrated guitar player. Yeah. Because he wasn't interested in showing off as much as the rest were. Yeah. Um, but, um, but Jeff Beck. Um, there was an article I found, or it found me. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the beauty of AI, <laughs> uh -huh. right? Um, on the one hand, it's a pain in the ass to be constantly flooded with advertisers getting in your head and, right, um, when you're on your digital screen. But I love the fact that Google, seeing what articles I read, then sends me those types of articles uh -huh. in a feed. And I like that. So I don't that, have to click on it, but it, 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 <laughs> it, it tends to give me stuff I wouldn't have found on my own. Uh -huh. So it's, it's, and you see, when Marshall McLuhan said, it sounded kind of weird in the 60s, we knew he was right, but we couldn't quite put it together, that all technologies, particularly media, are extensions of the human body. Uh -huh. At first, that sounds a little weird. 
but then it becomes obvious. So, for example, the wheel, pretty big invention, extended our feet. Yeah. The microscope and the telescope extended our eyes. Uh-huh. They're extensions of the human body. Clothing is an extension of the skin. Yeah. But then he said something that when I first read it back in college, I said, it, it, it feels right, but I don't know how to get my arms around it or my brain around it. And that is, he said, the big difference was the, ele- the invention of electricity hmm. because electricity is the extension of the human nervous system. Hmm. Now, pause. And you think, well, there's, an, it, there's a, certainly a close analogy because electricity are electrons coursing, right? Creating a current that courses and moves through wires. Uh-huh. Our nervous system are electrochemical impulses that course through our, our bodies. So there is an analogy. But he was saying something even more, which is once electricity was invented, communication information was exponentially increased as well. And that has a big effect on our nervous system, including yeah. our brains. And I never forget because I found this out, and it's what's called a... Uh, Synchronicity, great Jungian term. Synchronicity are two or more events that clearly one didn't cause the other, Uh but they're so closely related, it can't just be a coincidence. Right. Okay? And the simplest example of that, because we've all experienced it, is for some reason you think about someone you haven't talked to in a year, and the next day they call you. Right. They call you. You don't call them. Yeah, right. right. So... Perhaps at some quantum level, we did cause that. But assuming it, it wasn't a cause and effect, but it's two things that it can't just be a coincidence. Uh-huh. Can it? So I was curious because McLuhan pointed out the first electric, the fr- and the, it's not so obvious until you think, but the first electronic technology was light bulb before that, before the light bulb. Um, I wouldn't have gotten it. I don't, uh, I'm not sure. I'm The telegraph. Ah. So talk about telegraph. Why don't you just talk about an abacus? (laughs) But the telegraph was, what what changed there was suddenly now, uh, the telegraph was, the the technology was first discovered like in the 1820s, but it wasn't until around 1860, late 50s, somewhere in there, that all that the uh, coast to coast of the United States from California to New York was connected uh-huh. by telegraph poles. It, it you know it took 25 years back then to do that. But when that switch was thrown, right? Uh-huh. It's pretty amazing that suddenly now one could communicate across the entire continent in seconds. Yeah. And now here's another thing, okay? So what was the fastest form of communication? Before the telegraph. Um, the postal service. There was no postal service. Oh. <laughs> it was the predecessor of the postal service. Um, I mean, it was a primitive postal service, but it's not what oh, we call it. I know. The Pony Express. Well done, sir. Yeah. Head of the class. <laughs> it didn't last very you can long. Leave, you can get out of the detention hall <laughs> and you can go to the head of the class. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, the, think about that. Think about that shift. Talk about an inflection point in evolution. You go from the Pony Express to the telegraph. So as ancient and primitive as the telegraph seems to us today, what a huge hmm. leap. Yeah. To be able to communicate that In seconds, quickly. what would have taken, okay, so let's think about it. Let's say you had a message you wanted to get from New York to Los Angeles. How long would the Pony yeah. Express have taken? <laughs> And which probably would have been faster than put by train. We had train. We had. Did we have? Yeah. Uh, no, I don't well, know. I, if we, had, we didn't have the transcontinental. Hang on. I think that. Hang uh, on. Hey Google. Uh, when was the transcontinental railroad completed? May tenth, eighteen. May tenth, eighteen sixty nine. All right. So not until eighteen sixty nine did we have. Um, <laughs> we have both of our series. Both I'm of trying our, to stop mine. Yeah, oh, you can't stop her. The first transcontinental 
Um, so, by the way, what we just did right there, artificial intelligence, is that we take it for granted, but it's pretty amazing. Yes, so at any is. rate, uh, so no, he didn't even have the Transcontinental Railroad. So in 1859, 1860, when the telegraph w- was first wired from coast to coast, right? Mm-hmm. How long would it have taken the Pony Express yeah. to deliver a message from New York to San Francisco <laughs> or Los Angeles? Weeks. Probably. From that to seconds. Yeah. So McLuhan points out that once that happened, aside from the fact that we could get information communicated ridiculously exponentially faster, it it actually out outered our central nervous system. Suddenly now think about think about how jangled as well as informed we get with the twenty four seven news cycle. Mm-hmm. It's both a blessing and a curse. Yeah. It clearly impinges on our nervous system, the news. Yes, it does. So what sounded kind of like a cool, but come on, you're stretching things out. The McLuhan said in the 60s that the, I mean, we can easily understand how the wheel is an extension of the human foot and the microscope and telescope an extension of the human eye and clothing an extension of the human skin and even the computer an extension of the human brain, which we'll get to a little bit later. Uh, uh-huh. uh, it's it's it, li- it takes a little more kind of right hemisphere creative thinking to get our brains around the fact that the invention of electricity and, and technology extended the human nervous system out there. Yeah. And think about now we have seven billion people every minute of every day, on some so, billions of people every minute of every day connected through the internet. Uh huh. What's that doing to our nervous system, for good and for bad right so um but this i just go i wanted to say okay so if McLuhan is right and then when that switch was pulled and we've and for the first time a country a continent was connected could transmit information in seconds with what would have taken weeks Uh what event Big event happened soon after that, right? Yeah. Civil War. Ah. Now, again, we're not saying that the pulling of the switch and and, and the fact that the telegraph, which had already been invented in the 1820s, but was coast to coast, happened the same year as the Civil War broke out. So we're not saying that caused it, but it can't just be a coincidence. Right. I think electricity, just pondering it now, gets short shrift from, uh, to the wheel and, the, and fire in terms of impact on human sure. life. And, and, and the difference, which we forget because we're an arrogant species, just open up any newspaper, listen to any report, how arrogant <laughs> we are. Um, some of which is justified, a lot of which is not. Um, you, you know, the uh, I'm sorry, you were just saying I just had a senior moment myself there. No electricity, the, electricity. Trip. We didn't invent electricity, right? We didn't invent fire. We didn't invent fire. We did invent the wheel. Yes. Uh, we did invent the microscope. Yeah. We did invent the telescope. We didn't invent fire. We didn't invent electricity. We discovered it. Right. Which gets to well, a point. we harnessed it. Well, first we had to discover it. Yeah. Right? Then we harnessed right. it. Yeah. Through inventions. But, it, but the reason that's an important point is we are at a point in human evolution that is totally unique in that we now have three huge forms of intelligence interacting with one another in ways that we can't even imagine the results are going to be. Okay. And what are those three forms of intelligence? Human. Human. Nature. Nature. The one we forget. And computer. Computer. Yeah. So we all know, oh human nature, yeah, computer, we I get it. We forget about nature's intelligence. Mm. And COVID nineteen is part of nature's intelligence. Because part of nature's intelligence, 
part of Newton's laws is for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. There's a balancing act in the universe, right? And when we humans encroach on nature in ways that are excessive, there's a pushback. It's the way nature works. Uh And COVID-19 came about because humans, we've pushed our civilization into wildlife areas that need to be left the freak alone. Yeah. You know, you have to have room to breathe. And the most important breathing apparatus on Earth is the rainforest. Look what we're doing to that. Yeah. And the forests, the trees. Right. Trees are amazing. (laughs) Plants are amazing. It's the most perfect symbiotic relationship we can imagine. We humans need oxygen. Well, mammals and most living forms need oxygen. Right. We humans need oxygen, a lot of it. And we have to get rid of carbon dioxide or else we're gone. Right. Plants, including trees, they need carbon dioxide and they have to get rid of oxygen. Uh Wow. Yeah. So how do we thank that? You know, we just destroy them. Cut them down. So um, there's three forms of intelligence interacting right now, which we tend to forget. So to start getting a little bit of a handle on this article, uh, I I don't have a date here. The Unraveling of America. Anthropologist Wade Davis on how COVID-19 signals the end of the American era. Now, before we start, there's plenty to criticize about America and our empire. But from an evolutionary standpoint, big picture standpoint, we're no different than every empire that preceded us. Mm-hmm. He goes into the fact that, God, we were taught history in such a boring and limited <laughs> way. We think we've been around forever. Right. We've been an empire for a very short period of time, yeah. 1945, yeah. until now, and that's changing. China will be overtaking us in the next five to ten years. Everything's going faster. I mean, other empires had a, had a longer run, perhaps, because uh, things went slower. Correct. Technology wasn't going at the speed we have now. And what we, what we tend to forget is that computer intelligence, which could bring about the next major renaissance, is also forcing our brains to work at speeds mm. never before experienced. It's one, re- one of the major reasons there's so much stress and anxiety out there. Because we can't point to it, we say, oh, no, it's, all, it's all COVID-19, it's Trump. Okay? <laughs> Those are um, manifestations of an evolutionary shift going on that's accelerating. And um, they're not there by accident. So when we talk about the unraveling of America, while, again, we deserve to be criticized for our bad behaviors, we are doing nothing different than every empire that preceded us. The empire before us was the Spanish Empire, and then the French had their say, and the Spanish, of course, had theirs. Um, The Dutch had theirs. The Italians had theirs. The Chinese had theirs. theirs. Um, And every empire before us has risen and fallen. Fallen doesn't mean you disappear. Mm-hmm. Great Britain didn't disappear. <laughs> but they no longer were the bull. They couldn't bully everybody right. the way they could because we human beings as mammals were very territorial. If we don't get past that, we will not be here in probably 100 years. Mm-hmm. But um, that's our basic drive is to protect territory. And then we decided, well, we should also be expanding it for human beings. Um, I wonder if it's because if you look at some of the uh, empires, the British Empire, the Dutch Empire, Mm -hmm. tiny little places Mm -hmm. who grew to be world powers, perhaps through through technologies, perhaps because they were so small, they needed to expand. And so they took over Canada and they took over Australia. They took. Sure. It's called expanding your territory. Yeah. And um, we were taught to extol the pioneer spirit. Right. Oh, 
Oh, you mean the people who basically destroyed, cut everything down, and when they found the natives whose land it was, they just took it away from them and created it and, and basically killed off an entire race of people. Right. And the ones they didn't kill, they forced into reservations. Oh, that pioneer spirit. <laughs> Davy, yes. Davy Crockett, screw you. Come on. <laughs> nice, nice history lesson we got. Uh-huh. So... But the point is, we're doing nothing different than empires before. This is about the human brain and the human mind. Right. Okay? So we're not going to disappear, but we're not going to be the big kid on the block. Mm. It's going to be tough, Dan. Because what every empire, you know what every empire did before us that we're doing? We become the major empire, and instead of building a environmentally clean, compassionate, environment that is inclusive and helps bring everybody together in a collaborative way what human beings have done throughout our evolution is we we just start expanding our empire militarily right until we're so stretched out uh-huh. we start to erode from the inside Sounds Look, like the, roman the roman empire think about how powerful <laughs> that empire was yeah holy mackerel a small area of Italy controlled Europe, Asia, yeah, Africa. I mean, amazing. But they extended themselves militarily to such a degree that they eroded from the inside. Yeah. Uh, they also had a lot of lead in their glassware, so there were some <laughs> environmental issues. Um, and uh, But every empire has done that. Yeah. Um. And we're doing it. So here's the article, The Unraveling of America, by Wade Davis. Never in our lives have we experienced such a global phenomenon. For the first time in the history of the world, all of humanity, informed by the unprecedented reach of digital technology, there we go, computer intelligence, Mm -hmm. has come together, focused on the same existential threat, consumed by the same fears and uncertainties, eagerly anticipating the same as yet unrealized promises of medical science. In a single season, civilization has been brought low by a microscopic parasite 10,000 times smaller than a grain of salt. Mm. COVID-19 attacks our physical bodies, but also the cultural foundation of our lives, the toolbox of community and connectivity that is for human what claws and teeth represent to the tiger. Oh, interesting. And that's the part we're not taught in our history classes, in our biology classes, in our science classes, which is what made the human being the most powerful species on this planet was community and connectivity. Right. And while... Mr. Davis correctly, it might be Professor Davis, he's leadership and chair in cultures and ecosystems at risk at the University of British Columbia. I'm guessing he's a professor. Um, Yeah, he's right that we've come together focused on the same existential threat, but we're not doing it collaboratively. No. We're doing it competitively. Exactly. Now, competition is supposed to spur invention. It's supposed to increase the benefits of life. To some degree, it does. Mm -hmm. But... It's collaboration that made us the species we are, and we forget it all the time because we're not collaborating with other countries. We're competing with them for, mm. the, for the vaccine. Right. In an enlightened culture that is now connected by the World Wide Web, the, the world would have gotten together and formed a global commission or a global task think force. tank task force to say, okay, we're going to fund it. Where every country is going to provide, or you know, the, their best scientists, scientific minds, and we're going to collaborate on this. Yeah, the World Health Organization. There's a concept. They're com- <laughs> <laughs> and the and the CDC, the Center for Disease right. Control. They're changing their minds all the time because they can't help but be influenced by politics. Because without politics, they don't get funded. Right. Competition. Oh, but wait a minute. Evolution is survival of the fittest. We'll get into that. <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, it looks like that way. But it's actually survival of those that can adapt best to novelty. 
Mm. Okay. But continuing with the unraveling of America. Pandemics and plagues have a way of shifting the course of history. And not always in a matter immediately evident to the survivors. In the 14th century, the Black Death killed close to half of Europe's population. Try to get our brains around that. Yeah. Now, there wasn't as many people around back then, but there were millions. Yeah. Half of them went. And it attacked the rich as much as the poor. Mm -hmm. Or at least maybe not as much, but it certainly wiped out a lot of the wealthy who who couldn't protect themselves. Right. Half the population of Europe wiped out by a plague. Well, obviously, talk about fear and anxiety, but you know what else it caused? The Renaissance. Yeah. Rising, the um, rising expectations culminated in the Peasants' Revolt of 1381, an inflection point that marked the beginning of the end of the feudal order and started creating what we know as capitalism, which exponentially expanded wealth. Now, of course, wealth is being contracted again. Because mm-hmm. that's what greedy we greedy humans do when we can. And uh, both nature and the human brain will have something to say about that. Uh-huh. It always does. So the Black Plague marked an inflection point that, be, that, that ended the feudal order that had dominated medieval Europe for a thousand years. The COVID pandemic will be remembered as such a moment in history, a seminal event whose significance will unfold only in the wake of crisis. That's how we adapt. Mm -hmm. Because a crisis will create new novel situations. That's what keeps evolution generating. Um, And we're now being forced to adapt at a rate faster than our ancestors ever had to. Oh, yeah. Uh, Mr. Professor Wade continues, in 1940, with Europe already ablaze, the United States, now 1940 is not ancient history. No. It's our parents' generation. It's one generation ago. Yeah. In 1940, with Europe ablaze in war, the United States had a smaller army than either Portugal or Bulgaria. (laughs) Get your brain around that one. Yeah. In 1940... When the, the, the most powerful empire in the world was the British Empire, being challenged by the German Empire. Uh-huh. We come along, and in 1940, in the midst of probably the last war that could be won. Yeah. The United States has not won a war since World War II, folks. And we've been at war for most Constantly, of that time. as every empire before us has been. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the human brain. Yeah. The part that we better get a hold of. At any rate, 1940, with Europe already in a world war, the United States had a smaller army than Portugal or Bulgaria. <laughs> Within four years, 18 million men and women would serve in uniform with millions more working double shifts in mines and factories and made America, as President Roosevelt promised, the arsenal of democracy. Uh, that's an interesting uh, phrase. Uh-huh. Necessary at the time. Sure. But we haven't adapted. We still think in order to be democratic, we have to do it through an arsenal. Uh huh. How's that working out? <laughs> Last we looked, there are a lot of nuclear bombs out there, weapons out there. Yeah. You can't win a war anymore. No. But we're going to continue fighting them. Yeah. All right, so... Where do we go from here? That's part of his article. The article is worth reading. Um, it is called The Unraveling of America by Wade Davis, who's chair in culture. Good title. I like these titles. He's the <laughs> leadership chair in cultures and ecosystems at risk at the University of British Columbia. Looks good in a business card, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Excuse me. I'm the... Uh, Chair of Ecosystems at Risk. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great <laughs> if you're giving a card, he slipped on a banana peel? That would be great. <laughs> All right, so... Um, unsettling as these transitions and circumstances will be with 
COVID-19 here to stay for quite a while. Um, short of a complete economic collapse, none stands out as a turning point in history. But what surely does is the devastating impact the pandemic has had on the reputation and international standing of the United States of America. In a dark season of pestilence, COVID has reduced to tatters the illusion of American exceptionalism. At the height of the crisis, with more than 2,000 dying each day, Americans found themselves members of a failed state ruled by a dysfunctional and incompetent government, largely responsible for death rates that added a tragic coda to America's claim to supremacy. For the first time, the international community felt compelled to send disaster relief to Washington. Nah. For more than two centuries, reported the Irish Times, quote, gotta love the Irish. <laughs> the United States has stirred a very wide range of feelings in the rest of the world. Love and hatred, fear and hope, envy and contempt, awe and anger. But there's one emotion that has never been directed towards the U.S. until now. Pity. Mm. Um, and again, nothing that every previous empire hasn't done before us. This is about the human brain more than it is about American behavior. Yeah. Which is why it still shocks me that one can go through in the United States, which has a pretty good public school system, one can go through an entire education, learn a lot about wars, a lot about generals, mm -hmm. a lot about presidents, but very little about the human brain. Yeah. Think about it. How many hours... Did you study the human brain through through your educational career? Got to do it on our own. Yeah. I don't remember studying the human brain. I think we did it for about, I think there were about three days in biology <laughs> in high school. Yeah, I skipped, skipped that. <laughs> yeah. All right, you were, you, were, you were playing hooky that day. I skipped that. All right. So we're going to take a break. We're going to come back, talk a little bit more about evolution and where we sit. Yeah. Uh, have some fun with it. Also, uh, is Gus coming in today? I believe he is. That would be great. Um, that'd be the first time in like eight months. I believe he might actually the be Sultan here. of Sonic Soul. So I'm hearing whispers of uh, saxophone wafting through the uh, studio. How beautiful. That's a good thing. <laughs> so we'll have some uh, live jazz from, from Gus. Um, we're going to open up the Woodstock Roundtable jukebox mm. and play a cut from three albums that Jeff Beck said most influenced Interesting. Him to become a guitar player. What a mix. Ah, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. I'll give you the initials of the artists. Okay. Um, BK, MD, GV. No way you get it. I wouldn't have come close. MK. No. And no. Uh, I got to think about this again. Um, BK. BB King. Good. You're one, <laughs> you got one. Good. All right. BK. Um, MD. Not, a, not known as a rock performer. I'm lost. That's why, because it's, it's you have to go to jazz. Ah, and you say Jeff Beck and Big, yeah. And where do you hear the cut? Where do you hear the album he chose? I I never heard of the album. Huh? It's awesome. And 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 it inspired him to be a guitar player. Good, he, he, good, and 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 become and and develop the style that he did. Hmm. Now the BB King album was a live album he did in the early 60s the md was 1972 so jeff beck was already a great guitarist at the time but it totally he said totally opened his mind in ways he never thought of hmm. before miles davis ah i should have thought of now that. the gv is a tough one because he's kind of lost in the dustbins of rock and roll history even though and because he had a very short career Mm. So you don't think of him the way you think of Elvis Presley, Buddy Holly, Chuck Berry. Um, but hmm. it was his guitar style that got to, to uh, Jeff Beck in 1957. 
Huh. Doesn't You don't hear about this guy very much. You'll recognize the name, though. Yeah, I'm sure I will. He only really had one great hit. Hey. Gene Vincent. Oh, sure. Gene um So we're going to play a cut, not that well-known by Gene Vincent. To, and, you know, you hear the guitar and you go, okay, I could see why Jeff Beck liked that. Uh-huh. So we'll do that a little bit later. And if we have time, a really cool trivia question, though. Get the synapses oh. of the brain firing. <laughs> it's a movie question. Okay. But it's a big one. All right. We'll be right back. What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned that Washington never told a lie. I learned that soldiers seldom die. I learned that everybody's free. And that's what the teacher said to me. That's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? Good call, Ron. Was that you or Hal that picked that? Uh, well, that was my. Oh, good. That was me. Thank, but, thank, but, thank Hal for playing. But Hal had it. Yeah. I was just waiting for me to pick it off the low-hanging fruit. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Grunther, your host, co-hosting as he does illustratively every week. Ron Van Warmer will play good music for you when I leave mm-hmm. at 9 o'clock. The Sultan of Sonic Soul, Gus Mancini, will be in yeah. a little bit later on. We'll open up the Woodstock Roundtable jukebox, but we're talking about the most important game, not only in town, but on the planet, which is evolution. Yeah. Which is, we don't know exactly how, but it's going through a major shift. You can feel it. So we talked about this uh, really cool article um, from, uh, I don't know where it came from, uh, but you can Google it. And... um, and figure it out, but it's called the unraveling of America. But you know, we we talk about change, and it's happening exponentially at a speed we've never experienced before. I found this interesting. What would you guess? I would have had this way wrong. What <laughs> would you have guessed? The percentage of Americans that lived on farms in the year eighteen hundred, the sort of the beginning decades of our republic. I would say. 90. Right on the mark. Hey. You stay at the head of the class. I stay. <laughs> I'm giving myself a gold star. Yes, without question. Think about that. 90% of the population, obviously it's a much smaller population, but mm-hmm. percentages mean something. 90% of all Americans lived on farms in 1800. In 1900, 100 years later, mm-hmm. well, we had the Industrial Revolution. Right. Just under 40% of the U.S. population lived on farms. Hmm. From 90 to 40 in just 100 years. Yeah. From 1900 to 1950, more farms were consolidated or sold during this period than any other period in our history. The number of people... The number of people on farms dropped from over 20 million in 1950 to less than 10 million in 1970. Hmm. Today, 1% of Americans live on farms. Wow. Now, we have a computer revolution going on that is totally changing the workplace. Computer automation is going to eliminate already has, and will start eliminating at a faster pace tens of millions of jobs. Mm-hmm. Well, what happened to all those millions of farmers who no longer lived on farms? Did they just go destitute and never work again? They went to cities. They learned jobs. new trade because new industries emerged. Right. Novelty and newness is the generator of evolution. So on a certain level, you could say it's survival of the fittest, but you have to, we, have to, we have to have a better grip of what fittest means. First of all, if we said, what did we learn about evolution? Survival of the fittest. Mm-hmm. That's not Darwin's phrase. No. 
It's Edwin Spencer's phrase, who was an intellectual at the time, who read Darwin's amazing origin of the species mm-hmm. and came up with the phrase survive the fittest. Now, it became so popular that when Darwin continued writing, he did use the phrase, but he made it clear that what he meant by fittest was most adaptable. Right, which is the fittest. Right, but we tend to think of fittest in purely physical terms. Right, big and strong. and Or even in purely intellectual terms, and neither of those are sufficient. They're part of it. They're not sufficient because one could be incredibly physically talented, one could have a tremendously high IQ and not be adaptable. Mm-hmm. And the reason we need to be adaptable is because the way evolution works, nature's intelligence is based on novelty. Without novelty, we wouldn't be here. There'd be no movement. There'd right. be no shifts that created the kind of changes that led to a planet developing to where life, uh, plant life was able to grow and then biological life um, uh, with expanded brains. Um, this is because of novelty. But we run from novelty like a go- like it's mm. a ghost because mm-hmm. that's what we were taught to do. Now, we've talked about the left and right hemisphere of the brains. Very important. Both are crucial. We need both. But modern cultures have emphasized the left hemisphere, which is the part that analyzes, takes things apart, understands the world by taking things apart and understanding the parts. Very important. Mm -hmm. But it misses the big picture. It misses the forest for the trees. It's great at identifying the trees. It's incapable of seeing the forest. That's the right hemisphere. So... This is big picture stuff, what's going on, um, and, the, and the kind of changes that are going on. Um, and survival of the fittest is really survival of the most adaptable, which is those that can deal with novelty. The reason the left hemisphere of our brain can't deal with novelty is as important and strong as the left hemisphere is and created a whole scientific revolution. But it has, it can only deal in certainties. The left hemisphere of our brain cannot deal with uncertainty. It can't. Right. To ask it to is asking a <laughs> scorpion not to sting. Um, it, that's what its nature is. It's not the part of our brain that is the most collaborative, which is the part we mm. need now. It's the part that mostly focuses on territory and parts. When something new comes into our sphere of influence, the left hemisphere is going to fear it. Mm -hmm. Then it will try to understand it. If it can't understand (laughs) it, it's going to have a big problem. Yeah. And sometimes, eventually, it breaks it apart, understands it, and then we're okay. But we don't have that amount of time. It's the right hemisphere that's less interested in figuring things out than intuitively grasping out the word intuitively understanding the big picture that's going on. Mm-hmm. It's the part of our brain that's more artistic, more creative, more intuitive, and capable of making intuitive leaps. And it's the part of our brain that's more capable of accepting we're not going to know the answer right now because it's new. Right. We're going to have to adapt to it. The left hemisphere is trying to figure out how it can make it part of its territory. So. So it's very nice when they collaborate, the left and the right. Very important. And that's our job as the CEO of our brains. Mm. Because they collaborate on, on an unconscious level through the corpus callosum. The left and right hemisphere are collaborating all the time. But as we learned from Ian McGilchrist, who wrote the book on this, The Master and His Emissary, when the left hemisphere is given information from the right, it tends not to hand it back ah. for a big picture review. Hmm. It tends to hold on to it. 
Darwin definitely noted competition in the predator-prey dynamic of nature, but he also observed that the most favorable advances in evolution come from the practice of mutual aid and collaboration over competition. If we go out in nature and we're determined to see nature as competition, we'll find it. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of competition out there in nature. Yeah. But if we went out into nature from the standpoint of looking for collaboration, we'll find even more of that than we will competition. But you have to be looking for it mm. or you don't see it. Right. And the greatest collaboration, I think, we should you know, get a botanist in here or an anthropologist or a, a physicist who may have a better one, is the relationship between us mammals and plants. Mm-hmm. We need oxygen. They give off oxygen. We need to get rid of carbon dioxide. They need to take in carbon dioxide. It's a perfect symbiotic relationship. That's collaboration, not competition. Exactly. Random selection, while important, is not the key to evolution. The key is novelty and creative change. Without variation, um, this is a quote I got from, uh, I don't know, somewhere here. Uh, Oh, biologist James Shapiro. This is a talk I gave the last couple of years before COVID hit. (laughs) Um, I found this biologist because I just knew what I was taught about evolution was elementary. Uh And I found this biologist, James Shapiro, and he said, quote, random selection, while important, is not the key to evolution. The key is novelty and creative change. Without variation and novelty, selection has nothing to act upon. Right. Yeah. So that's the ultimate game we're in right now. And by the way, talk about a synchronicity. What do they call, what is the generic term for COVID-19? Flu? (laughs) Well, it's a virus. Virus. What kind of virus? Novel. Novelty virus. Yes. It's a novel virus. Right. Novelty. Yeah. That's what freaked us out. Yeah. We didn't know what, nobody knew what it was we had to study it we had to use both sides of our brains to figure it out and we didn't have a lot of time no we made a few mistakes so (laughs) how many courses on dealing with novelty did you i mean it's 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 embedded in certain courses i mean when we if you take a, a literature course there's certainly novelty in novels right um but that's the game here is are we humans going to adapt in time while living in an empire in decline, all empires rise and fall. We're not going away, but we're declining. Mm-hmm. And as Professor Davis pointed out in his article, The Unraveling of America, like every empire before us, our most, the biggest part of our budget is military. Right. You know how many countries we have U.S. military presence in right now? I would say over 100. 150. Wow. Is that money well spent? So what's China doing? China hasn't been at at war for 50 years. Mm -hmm. Where's China putting its trillions of dollars? It's called the Road and Belt Initiative. If you don't know about it, look it up. Yeah. They are spending, they say, somewhere between three and eight trillion dollars creating roads, uh, ship routes. Yeah air routes through Europe to Africa and South America to have access to the resources there, the natural resources there. Mm -hmm. And instead of fighting wars with Africans and South Americans and Europeans, they're funding projects. Yeah. And gaining access. And listen, they have their dark sides as well as we do. Oh, yeah. But what made us great, fortunately and unfortunately, was winning a war. It was a magnificent achievement. Mm -hmm. And from the technology that was developed to win that war, we expanded wealth through capitalism like no one had ever seen before. Now we're eating our young. Mm -hmm. There was an article, I believe it was in the Atlantic, that did a, um, it was done by an economist, not by some you know new age hippie. Um, 
who figured out that through the manipulation of the tax code and other lobbying efforts, because pretty much every congressman, with possible exception of Bernie Sanders, is owned by corporations. He doesn't take corporate money. Um, They figured out that since the Reagan administration, right through George H.W. Bush, uh, right through Bill Clinton, right through George W. Bush, right through Barack Obama to Trump, what used to be called the middle class, the majority of Americans, have basically been robbed of, of about some hundreds of trillion, uh, some trillion dollars, trillions of dollars a year. Wow. Out of the pockets of the majority of Americans to the 1%. Right. There's going to be a reaction to that at some point. Yeah. There's a French Revolution under similar circumstances. Mm-hmm. Let them eat. <laughs> let them eat cake. Yeah, exactly. How'd that work out for the royalty? Yeah, you think you think Congress people and presidents are powerful? How powerful was the King of France yeah. and the King of England? Their right hemispheres weren't connected, <laughs> and they were gone. Yeah, yeah. We never got to computers reading our minds. Oh, I'll do that real quick because then we're going to get to Patrick Carlin. Right. So we'll get our favorite uh, street philosopher. Okay, so let me get to that quick one. We didn't get to the fact that we, the insect population is, is being devastated. Right. It's having a huge effect on our farms and uh, our, our whole environment. But let me find that quick thing because it shows where, where, where the, leap, the positive novel leaps are coming from. They're going to come from the connection between the human brain, the computer brain, and nature's intelligence. Okay. Get my notes together here. All right. How AI could become a new accessible extension of your mind. This is from February 13th. Students from MIT. Students. Have created a prototype device called Alter Ego that can recognize the words you mouth when silently talking to yourself. Huh. Wow. And then take action based on what it thinks you're saying. No sounds, no lip movements are required. Remember the great scene from 2001 where the astronauts don't realize how is reading their lips? Uh-huh. They know that they, they seal themselves up in a cat so that he can't hear them, but the computer can read their lips. This is beyond how. You don't have to be moving your lips. When we wow. are um, thinking, we're silently talking to ourselves. No sounds, no lip movements are required. Imagine an interface to your computer, smartphone, or virtual assistant that you can seamlessly use wherever you are and however noisy your surroundings are. Now imagine that you actually can't speak. This technology opens up all the options of natural language commands, text dictation, and super high productivity that's currently available to everyone else. Um, The students found this out, right? Uh Uh-huh. One of them, Arnav Kapoor, is a master's student at the MIT Media Lab. Electrodes on the face and jaw pick up otherwise undetectable neuromuscular signals triggered by internal verbalizations. A bone conducting speaker speaks the AI output directly into your head, leaving your ears free. Not only can it pick up unspoken phrases, but the response from your computer phone or virtual assistant of choice can be silently piped right into your head without even seeming to be wearing (laughs) any sort of headphone or earbuds. This is the first internal AI. Wow. We might want to start figuring out how to adapt to novelty. Let's uh, tune in to Patrick Carlin. Why don't we give Patrick a call? We always love getting some insights from our favorite street philosopher. Patrick there? No. Yeah, man. I'm hey, here. there he is, Patrick. Good morning. Uh, how you doing? I'm getting good notes this morning, but it's amazing again how uh, I'm way ahead of what's in the air. I wrote the I write little things down, like uh, a career guidance counselor saying to a kid, uh, uh, oh, "Tell me about your plan for life," and I have the kid replying, "Do you know what an absurd thing you just said?" And uh, I like official names on things, but. I call it survival of the hippest, mm-hmm. and that's all it's about, bro. Uh, if you're hip to the jive, you got a good chance of staying alive, and even then, uh, they might take you away. 
because of some half-wit next to you, as Bugs Bunny calls them, maroons. But uh, I got to tell you, I uh, really enjoyed this morning, and I'm enjoying it still, McLuhan and electricity, because he was a friend, you know, he was, he was a, a spirit that, uh, that I admire, and like Bunk Mr. Filler and these guys, and uh, thoughtful people. And uh, I like what uh, he said about it being an extension of the nervous system, because it is. And, you know, you had the, tele- the Telegraph and the Pony Express only lasted a year, and they got blown right out of the tub. But that's life. And uh, smoke signals and drums, man, that's where it's mm-hmm. at. If they're too far to see, you know, if they're not close enough to see uh, your smoke signal, you don't want to be talking to them anyway. So uh, you want people, yeah, drunk jungle drums and stuff, things like this. Those are good ways to communicate. But about the farms, that's true. Uh, you know, how they went down, and when people said, you know, they could have more fun on Broadway than Podunk, and uh, they got on the big bus and came to make it happen. So uh, I I enjoy that. But what life is about and evolution is about, and we're evolving. we got to accept the fact that we're just a link on the way to the robot trip, and that's fine. I mean, accept your place and your eras and, uh, and your... Uh, your empires and things. I mean, if you don't have brains enough to look at the beach and see a wave come up and then recede and then another wave come up and and you look around, grow up, dude. Uh, there's no tricentennial coming. It's unraveling. <laughs> this guy, Gray Davis, uh, I like his name because that used to be the treasure in California when they were trying to teach me... Uh, how to be a motorcycle repairman, which I did get good on carburetors, but I got a check twice a month from the state signed by Gray Davis, and that was nice. That was a good vibe. But, I mean, it's only there to be seen. We're, but we're just, I took a map one time, and I wrote circles for the different areas, you know, and the different people that are within them and how things change. And they showed a ferry boat captain. I was watching a Civil War thing, and he was ferrying troops across the river. And if he thought they were Union renegades coming or Union guys or red legs or stuff, he'd start singing, oh, my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And if he thought they were rebels that were going to use his ferry, he'd start singing, uh, I wish I was in Dixie, and then acting like he didn't know it, you know, like he didn't know they were coming. <laughs> and so, oh, I'm one of you guys. And that's a cool thing. That's a chameleon. That's, that's adaptability. I just watched a thing on TV, it's a commercial, and I saw a whole bunch of people running like hell to get to their SUVs. It was a panic, and it was a little skunk. It was a little skunk chasing these morons, man. We went to a drive-in one time up in New Hampshire, and I saw this little black-and-white cat near me. I gave him a hunk of my burger, but it was a skunk, man. And he split. He, he, he walked under the under the back of the vehicle, and the next thing I know, he was gone. It was not a panic scene. He's only got one stunt, and it's a big one. And he saves that for when it's really serious. Mm. And you talk about WW2. Let me tell you something. I was there. 1940, I, I turned nine years old that year. I was 10 years old when Pearl got bombed. And I saw everybody spring into action. It was a wonderful thing. It's like if you're sitting in a chair and a guy punches you in the mouth and knocks you right on your butt. Man, you're springing up, and the punches and stuff you're throwing are better than you've ever thrown because you are P.O.'d, and you just want to kill that dude. You don't want to beat him up. You want to beat him to death. (laughs) And that's what happened in WW2. It was an exciting time to be alive. I'm a living history book, man. Let me tell you that. I did the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. I did them all. And I changed. When the 60s came, I let my hair grow. I was a misfit before, man. So when the hippies came along, I mean, they weren't new to me. They just looked a little hairier. But it was the same philosophy that I'd had all my life, man. What's, how's it going to work? How am I going to adapt with it? All right, I can still get out of detention. I can get Santiago Orac to sign my detention slip. I'll give him a dime. And uh, they could sign just like the prefect of discipline, B.J. Fleming. And it was my man. I saw he graduated. I looked in the yearbook. I was so happy. I was so happy to see that a lot of my buddies didn't get to graduate. 
<laughs> they wound up in vocational school and probably a hell of a lot better off than with an academic education. So uh, this thing of uh, survival of the fittest is absolutely right. Well, you are, you are a walking, kind of living example of it, and uh, that's why we get an injection of Patrick every week. Speaking of novelty, he's the novel and act as we can find. We always appreciate it. Best at home, Patrick, and we'll talk to you next week. All right, you guys, have fun. That's all what right. it's all about. Stay weird. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs> oh, no problem. <laughs> We're going to take a break. On the other side, talk about novelty for the first time in about seven months. The Sultan of Sonic Soul is live in the studio. That means we get some live jazz. Hang out with us here at the Woodstock Roundtable. I'm a loser. I'm a loser. And I'm not what I appear to be Of all the love I have won or have lost There is one love I should never have crossed She was a girl in a million